0: I decided to look at this psalm. I think it's very applicable to the time that we are in. It was written 3,000 years ago. It's a psalm of David. And it really is still significant to this very day. I chose this psalm today because it reminds us of who is in control of all things. It reminds us that no matter the circumstance, God is at work in this world. That God's plan of restoration of restoring this fallen earth. It's, it's going forth and nothing will stop it. I also chose this because God is the one that brings nations up and brings nations down. I also chose this sermon because I believe we need a reminder that we as the church are in the midst of a battle. We are in the midst of a fight. We are in the midst of nations that are raging against God. And His anointed King. I chose this because as Christians, we need to remind ourselves often that there is no neutrality in this world. You are either in Christ, a friend of Christ, a child of the Kingdom of God, or you are apart from Christ. An enemy of Christ, as the Scripture says. A member of the Kingdom of Darkness. You're in one camp or the other. And this psalm it really shows us that in this psalm we will see that those who are in the darkness they they rage against God and his anointed king they are at a constant state of rebellion against him but even with that God his his plan it never ceases his his action is never thwarted and even in their rebellion God he still offers grace to the heathen nations. He offers grace to the rebel. He offers peace to those who are at war with Him. That's what we will see in this psalm here today. So let's look at Psalm chapter 2. As I said, this is a psalm of David. The writer, David, he's writing of a Davidic king, a future king to what he thinks to be in his line. A messianic king. The nations that we read of here, they're they're the Gentile nations that are coming against God's anointed King. Many Jewish commentators in writing on this psalm, ancient commentators even, saw a greater fulfillment. A messianic fulfillment. And after David had come and gone, after his sons had died, they they knew that this psalm was pointing to something greater. the, The true Son. Of David, the greater David, none other than Jesus Christ. And as we read it, we we cannot help but see that this psalm truly is about the God-Man, Jesus Christ. It is a messianic psalm that is prophetic. It's a beautiful psalm that points to the the self-evident Scriptures written three thousand years ago before Christ. 1,000 years before Christ was even born, 3,000 years ago from our date. It speaks so evidently of Jesus Christ that we cannot help but be in awe of the Word of God. And it's not just a time in the Old Testament as this, this is encapsulated there. This speaks of all time. This speaks of the here and the now. This speaks of the reality of what is happening in our world today. So the question that the psalm starts out with is, why do the nations rage? As we go, seek to answer that question, ask yourself this morning, is there any doubt that the nations of the world rage against God? They've been raging against Him. They are still raging against Him. And they will continue to rage against Him until the return of our Lord. Nothing is new under the sun This has been going on for thousands of years. We see the nations of this world rage against God and His Son. His Anointed, as the text says. That word, anointed, literally means His Messiah or His Anointed One. The Holy One of God. If you were to translate it into the Greek language, it would be the Christ. The nations are raging against God's Christ. That's what the text says is telling us against Jesus Christ, His Son. Notice in verse 1, it says there that they plot in vain. The nations, they are taking counsel together as it says in verse 2. They're plotting against the Almighty Creator God. And they are united in their rebellion against Him. It's the desire of their hearts. They are in unison as they have come together against God. And they are plotting, they are conspiring to rid themselves of God and His anointed King. You might ask, why? Why are these nations raging against God? Well, this is the natural state of man apart from Christ. We know from Scripture that that by our nature, we hate God. And this psalm is speaking of that reality. That these hearts are far from God and the reality of their hearts is they are raging against Him. They are hating Him and they are showing it with their actions. You know, oftentimes we have a hard time admitting that in our hearts, but apart from Jesus Christ, people, as the Scriptures say, hate God and are trying to break free from Him. They are raging against Him because they reject Him, they reject His ways, they reject His holiness, they reject His will, and by their very nature, they hate everything that God is and what He stands for. You know, oftentimes I, I talk to my children about heaven, and I tell them that heaven is going to be all about God. God is going to be the center point of heaven. And so if you don't love God, you're not going to like it in heaven. Because we are going to be worshiping God, glorifying God, loving God for all of eternity. The greatest treasure, the greatest prize of all of this world is the fact that you get God in heaven for eternity. You get God in the new heavens and the new earth for eternity. This is gift of heaven. One thing is, is if you speak to the unbeliever, they, they still desire to go to heaven. But they don't realize that all of heaven is God. And if you hate God, you're not going to want to be in heaven. And that is the truth. So the enemies of this Scripture here, they have come together against God. They're They're plotting, as the text says, it is vain or an empty plot. It will surely fail. They set themselves against God. Nations throughout history have been raging in vain to rid themselves of God. And we see this at play all over the world that we live in right here and now. Nations trying to rid their population. Rid God from their populations. You have nations like China that constantly terrorize the local churches. They arrest pastors for being faithful. They they threaten and bully churches. They they make churches adhere to the communist manifesto. They make them them pledge allegiance to their communist government. It's much like in the first first century, when Caesar demanded Christians would call him Lord. In China, they arrest pastors who will not rewrite the Bible they will not preach from the communist-approved Bible. The communist nation of China is working to rid God from their nation. They put up all kinds of regulations and they make it almost impossible to afford a church building to gather in for Christians there in China. And recently, during the lockdown, they would arrest Christians, certain Christians for even having online meetings as a church body. Some other nations, they they flat out kill you if you are a Christian. Other nations will consider you a second class citizen and even give you a tax if you are a Christian. And this very nation that we live in, we see a great number of leaders, a great number of people that are raging against God and His anointed King. They are working diligently, plotting together, and seeking and desiring however they can to remove God from every aspect of public life in America. And you know, we, during this lockdown, during our nation's lockdown, we saw that time, we saw that on display in our nations. We saw Christians there, they were singled out. During that time, we saw the, the kingdom of Christ singled out. We saw ministers arrested for preaching the gospel. We saw Christians harassed by police officers on sidewalks. We saw sidewalk counselors arrested at abortion clinics while babies were allowed to be murdered inside. Many businesses, they remained open and they were deemed essential. Essential and the leaders of this country deemed the church of Jesus Christ unnecessary over our land. And many joyfully enforced such a farce. It was truly a, tra- a travesty. While liquor stores and abortion mills and home improvement stores were deemed essential, the church of Jesus Christ was forced to shutter their doors. The government told us that, that churches could now put all their sermons on YouTube and Facebook. And then there are all kinds of accounts where YouTube or Facebook did not like what the pastor was preaching, so they took their live fees down. They closed down their church's Facebook page. And even pastors right here in America, in Ido, Iowa, Idaho, as all a state like Idaho, they put an app so that they could play their sermons live. And Google, Google Play, removed their app from their app store. You might say, why? Why single out Christ Church in this way in America? Why do we see so many bullying Christians during this time of a public crisis? while so many others were out in grocery stores and long lines, but the Christians were singled out. Well, remember, there's no neutrality in this world. And it's just one more excuse for those who hate God and rage against Him to work their hearts off to try to destroy His kingdom. And that's what we saw across our nation. But Christian, I want you to hear this today, that even their efforts, we can take heart we can have great hope because ultimately their plots are a vain thing. Their plots, they will not succeed. So why is it, do they rage? Why is it that they plot in vain? Why have they conspired together? Verse 3 tells us, it says, Let us, speaking of those those. Nations that are raging, it says, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So this is the heart's desire of the nations that rage against God. They desire to break away from God. They desire to break free away from Him and His truth. They do not want to submit to Him. They do not want to do His will. They do not want His commandments Instead, what this text is telling us is they are desiring in their hearts to rid themselves of everything that God is and what He stands for. And this is the heart of man. It is at the heart of this verse 3. It's the one who says in his heart, I want it my way. I want nothing to do with a God who tells me what I should and should not do. I want to be my own God, my own king, my own ruler. And I would rather worship myself than God. This is at the heart of verse 3. This is their desire to break free from God. But as the text tells us, this is a vain plot. Their desire is to be free from God so that they can love their sin, so they can... Revel in the darkness. They want nothing to do with the One who exposes who they truly are. Who would take away what they love most in this life, their sin. And so they rebel against Him. This is the heart of the war against God. This is the heart of the secular onslaught against God and His ways. Breaking free, and we see it all over our nation right now. Breaking free from His marriage. Breaking free from His Word. Breaking free from biblical sexuality. Breaking free from His only one true way to heaven, Jesus Christ. Breaking free from the fact that God is the Creator of all things. And breaking free from His law rejecting Him and His Word. You know, when calamity came upon our nation, you might have hoped like I did that people would see this and repent. That they would see this time and that they would be, they would be brought to the end of themselves and that they would trust Christ. That, they would be, that the reality of death would be staring them right in the face. And this would be a great time of revival in our land. And I'm sure that people have come to Christ during this time. And that is truly my prayer for our nation, that we would repent of our abortion, of our sexual perversion, of our greed and our, our idolatry, that we would turn from sin, and that we would turn to Christ in faith. That is my hope for our nation. But as I watched the scene of what was taking place, a vast majority really doubled down in their worldview, Doubled down in their rebellion against God. Doubled down in their fight against Him. And this calamity has really driven many people farther from God. It has caused some politicians and other leaders in our nation to blaspheme God even. As I hear this and I think of God trying to get our attention, we need to pray for America. We need to pray for our nation. Because the truth, the reality, because of our sins in this nation, we deserve deserve far worse than what we've received from God. Pray for the mercy of God towards our rebellious nation. This text here in Psalm chapter 2, it really explains the rebellion of man. It is, once again, a testimony of the truth of Scripture. You know, you can can go to a psychologist. you You can take all the doctors of the world. They have all kinds of education. You're spending all kinds of money, and they'll give you all kinds of reasons of what's wrong with us. But it's really not that complicated. The Scriptures tell us what is wrong with the heart of man. Is that we are in rebellion to God. We have a sin problem. We, by nature, it says says in this text, want to break free from God. And it's from the absolute youngest of age. Think think about your children from the youngest of age. They they despise the command. They want the opposite of the command. You're constantly, as a parent, trying to reel them in. And get them to listen, to obey, to do what God would have them do in life. And it's a constant battle towards the nature of man. It's not complicated. Our problem is by our very nature, we want to break free from God and His anointed one. And this is true of the nations. They hate the ways of God and they desire to break free of them. So this is what the nations are doing all over our globe. They are raging against God. They are trying to break free from God. What is God's response to their plotting? He says in verse 4, He sits in the heavens and laughs. That's what the text says. It says there that the Lord holds them in derision. He laughs. That's, that's what this text says. I know it can be kind of surprising to our, our watered down interpretations of the Bible. It can, be, it can be kind of surprising to our tickle your ear sermons type of American ears. This verse here can really can, can come as a shock to us. That God, He's, He's sitting in the heavens and as the nations are raging against Him, He laughs. I've said it before, I think it should be at one of the top of the Christian memory verses. We should remember this verse. We can't translate it away, we can't nuance it into something else. I've looked at the Hebrew, you know what it means? He laughs. It's really that simple. As we look at it, we must remember God can do nothing sinful. God is perfect and holy. He is pure and sinless. And so when He laughs, when He mocks, as you could also translate it, these nations that, raging, that are raging against Him, He is pure in doing so. Really, what is God saying from this? What is He saying? He's, he's saying to us what they're doing, this plot, this, this vain thing that the nations are doing, it is so foolish, it is so absurd, that God's only reaction is to laugh at the folly of it. I want you to think about it today. Think about our rebellion against our Creator. How unintelligent, how foolish are we? It's truly a striving after the win. Do you think that you're going to win in your rebellion against the Almighty God? The one who put life into your lungs. Think about Satan. He's he's waging a war against God. How foolish. There is no winning against the Almighty Creator. And God, He wants us to know this from this verse. He has inspired this text here so that you and I would know that fighting against Him is a vain thing. And His only reaction can be to it is that He would laugh. Verse 4 goes on to say that he holds them in derision, which would literally mean he ridicules them or he scorns them, he mocks them, he scoffs at their vain plot. I want you to remember this response of God in the midst of what's going on in our nation. God's not worried about rebellion, God's not worried about the enemy. God's not worried about what's happening around us as the, the secularism rises in this nation. God's not worried about this rebellion. He's not concerned with those who come against Him. In fact, He laughs. Think if you had a ton of ants just charging you. What would you do? Just stomp them? And you'd stomp them like that? That's kind of what it's like. Yeah, All these, these creatures are just... Charging against God, but it's, it's nothing to him. It's nothing to him. He laughs. Think about it today. The nations, they're, they're working their hardest to, to break free from God, to remove God, to reject God. But what's he doing? He laughs. In their pride, they're like, we have this. He laughs. In their pride, they're like, we're going to win. We, this plot, it's good. We're going to get somewhere this time. He laughs. Think about our nation. The rise of secularism. Trying to remove God and replace Him with science. He laughs. Trying their absolute hardest to remove Him from every aspect of public life. He laughs. Think of China. Trying their absolute best to suppress that growing church. He laughs. And what's happening there? It's spreading and they cannot stop it. His plan is going forth. The enemies of God cannot stop him. Think about it once again from God's perspective. He has one little microscopic microscopic virus come upon the nations and it brings the entire world as we know it to a halt. He laughs. He is a mighty God. He's not worried about this vain plot. He laughs at it from the heavens. And verse 5 demonstrates to us what He will do. Verse 5 says, then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury. In other words, God's judgment will come against the rebellious man. It will come to all those who do not repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And this judgment, it could be in real time. It does not need to be relegated to a, a time at the very end of history. God will judge nations in real time. He brings nations up and He brings nations down. Think about all of history and how many nations we can't even remember. Where did they go? God spoke to them in His fury. That's what the text is telling us. Matthew Henry, he noted on these verses saying this, They can hope for no good success, speaking of those raging nations, in opposing such a powerful kingdom, speaking of the kingdom of Christ, which they are utterly and unable to contend with. It is a vain thing. When they have done their worst, Christ will still have a church in the world. And the church shall be glorious and triumphant, because it's built on the rock, Jesus Christ. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So despite all their work, all their rebellion, all of their plotting, all of their desire to overthrow God and His anointed, it's a vain And so this is what the nations are doing. This is what they've been doing. They're they're raging against God. But what is He doing in the heavens? It says there in the text, He establishes His King. He has established His Anointed One. So listen to this. God says, yes, they're plotting in vain. Yes, they are in rebellion to Me. Yes, they're trying to break free of Me. Yes, they're plotting in vain. He laughs at it, and then he says in verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So what's the imagery there? God's anointed king has taken his rule, his authority, his place in this world, despite all the rebellion. It didn't stop God's plan from going forth. In fact, God most likely used their rebellion to establish his king. As we see through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, resurrection, and his ascension. The nations, they're plotting against God, raging against him. But this does not deter God and his plan. He establishes his true rule, his true king, the God man, Jesus Christ. He has been given all authority on heaven and earth, and he is set up on God's holy hill. And you know, today, we need to remember this as Christians. It's not that Jesus will be King someday. Or it's not that He will be the King of kings someday. Or that He will be the Lord of lords someday. No, the truth of this Scripture is, He is the King. He is the Lord. He is ruling and reigning right now. And in real time, He's putting enemies under His foot, and He will finally put every enemy under His foot. He is declaring the rise and fall of nations. He is the King. He is working all things according to the counsel of His will. He's making all things new. And He is not dismayed. He is not worried. He is not deterred. He is ruling and reigning right now now you know what he's doing he's bringing his kingdom come and his will be done here on earth as it is in heaven and no vain plot of the enemy will ever stop that for one second the king has established his throne verse 7 it continues this language It says there that I will tell of the decree the Lord has said to me, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. Hebrews chapter 1 in the New Testament applies this very verse to Jesus Christ telling us that it was spoke of Jesus saying that He was above the angels. We hear this type of language throughout Jesus' life. The, The Father saying of His Son, This is My beloved Son. It's not telling us that Jesus had a beginning, that word begotten. People can often think that. No, this verse is not contradicting the fact that that Christ is eternal, like many cults would teach that He is not. This verse does not teach that Jesus had a beginning or, or that God the Father created Christ What it does teach is that the Son, the Son of God, God the Son, the Eternal One, had to come into the earth to fulfill all things. And He did that through obeying all that the Father had commanded of Him perfectly. He does that by the the fact that this second member of the triune God, He took on human flesh, He lived a perfect life, and He died a sacrificial death. He did exactly what He set out to do The Apostle Paul says that at His resurrection is when this verse 7 was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That at His resurrection, the One whom the Father was well pleased in, the One who lived as truly God and truly man, But as a man accomplished all that he had planned to do, living perfectly, fulfilling the law, laying down his life for sinners, and taking it up again in the resurrection, at that point of his glorification, it is where he is established as the eternal Davidic Son. And he is given all authority in heaven and in earth. And his rule as King of kings and Lord of lords will never end. This is past tense. This has already happened. I know we can think like, oh, the world is here and God's there and and He's not in control and everything's horrible. But no, He's in the heavens. He's ruling and reigning right now. His plan is going forth. He's using all things according to the counsel of His will. Nothing is outside of His sovereign rule. He is the King. Paul tells us in Acts chapter 13.13, That this verse was fulfilled by Christ at His resurrection. That Christ truly is now the preeminent One. The first fruits of our resurrection. The One who has gone before us. The foremost of all. The Son of God. The Davidic King. The ruler of all the earth. The ruler of the universe. This is Christ our King. The Father goes on to say of His Son here in verse 8. It says this, Ask of me, and I shall make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Here's the heritage of the Son. Think about this. Who are the nations? Who's, who owns them? Who's, who, who has them? It is Christ is Christ. So even these nations that are raging against Him, they are Christ's to do what He wishes with. That's what the text tells us, that the, that the Father has given every nation to Him, and that the whole earth as His p- possession. So while they all will plot in vain, those nations are still His. They're His for the winning. They're His for the saving. They are His for the conquering. They are His nations. He is the King over them. Ultimately, those who do not submit to His rule, what does the text Text tell us here? That their rebellion, it will end with Christ breaking them with a rod of iron and dashing them to pieces. Imagine the text here. A rod of iron breaking a clay pot. It would shatter so easily. And that is the future of all who rage against God. All who rebel against Him. Every single person outside of Jesus Christ, they will be dashed into pieces. Sometimes, I have to say, this happens in real time. Yes, we live in the time of of John 3.17 where Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. But our sin has consequences. Sometimes there are consequences for sin in real time for the unbeliever. For the one who has not received Christ as their Savior. Sometimes God even dashes nations to pieces in, in real time. It doesn't necessarily have to be at the end of all time. I have this written down in my notes, and I think it's a really important thing that we remember. The rise and fall of nations are in the hands of Christ. You know, as we can be a nation so arrogant, thinking America is the greatest nation it's ever been, and we're just going to keep going as we we've always been. We're slaughtering our children. We're making Sodom and Gomorrah look light. And we just expect that God's never going to dash this country to pieces. As I said, the rise and fall of nations are in the hands of Christ. May we repent. John, the Apostle John, the writer of the book of Revelation, he, he applies these verses to Jesus Christ. He says of Christ that He is the One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's in Revelation 12.5. In Revelation 19.15 it says, from His mouth comes a sharp sword to which He will strike down the nations and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. This is the Word of our Lord. We know of Christ that his, his rule will be a rule that will never end. That every enemy will eventually be under His foot. And that every knee shall bow. Even these raging nations, even these who are rebelling against God, what's the Scripture tell us? That every single knee will bow and confess Him as Lord. Ultimately, we know from Scripture that this rebellion will not end well. It will truly be a vain thing. It will be a worthless cause. And ultimately, they will submit to Christ as every knee will bow to Him. We see God's judgment that will come upon the nations through His Son, Jesus Christ. And you would think it would end there. I mean, you think about the nations, you think about how they've rebelled against God, they've cursed His name, they've blasphemed Him, they've sinned against God so greatly, you think that it would end there. They've conspired against His anointed, and He has laughed at their vain plotting from the heavens. You would think that God would wipe them out right then and there. That right then and there, He would pour His wrath out on them. And that this would be the end of this psalm. And that truly would be the end of this psalm if our God was all justice and no mercy. But He truly is the Holy God who is both just and merciful. And so, what's He do at the end of this psalm? He offers them grace. He's calling out to the nations of the world and He offers them grace. He gives them time to repent and to believe the gospel. And we hear that call right here from Psalm chapter 2, calling them to turn away from their foolish rebellion, turn away from their rejection of the Son of God, and to turn to Him. Look at verse 10. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. You know, Hear the warning of this text. What was the warning? He's going to dash you to pieces. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Verse 11 says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. This is a call to the nations to serve the true King. To repent of their rebellion. To repent of their vain plotting. To repent of their breaking free from God to fear Him and live. Verse 12 says, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. It says there, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This is God's invitation to the raging nations. This is God's invitation to our nation to worship the son the text means to to pay homage to to revere to to worship to bow down to kiss the king come in humble submission to jesus christ this is what verse 12 is telling us and remember remember there is no neutrality i started this sermon telling you there's no neutrality You're going to be in the the kingdom of the sun, or you're going to be a part of the kingdom of darkness that's raging against God. Today, you need to make sure who it is that you serve. Who's your allegiance to? Who have you bowed down to? Who have you submitted your life to? Who is your king? Who is your Lord? Know this that all apart from Christ will be those who are dashed to pieces and perish. But all those who are in Christ, what's it say? Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Blessed are those. So that's been Psalm chapter 2. A few words of application from this text. One thing I just want to say is Christ, He's still on His throne. Man, do we get anxiety, worried, we, we, we lose sight of the promises of God, we lose sight of what God has do, is doing in this world. We get what if syndrome, or we just constantly go through what if this, what if this, what if this. This psalm is never going to cease to be true. God has set up His anointed King. And Christ is ruling and reigning right now as we speak. He is over the nations and He's in control of all things. While what they do, they mean for evil, God is intending it for good. And He is the chess chess master. He is the one that has placed all the pieces as they should be and everything's working up. They're the consummation of His kingdom. That is the truth of Scripture, and nothing is going to stop that. Nothing is outside of His rule. As Christians, we need to find peace in this today. We need to find rest in this today. We need to find hope in this today. That we know the King, we're on His side. And so we truly are on the right side of history. To have given your allegiance to the, the one true king is to be on the right side of history. We need to remind ourselves often of this. Oftentimes we can be so afraid. We can be so so stricken with fear. We can be afraid of other people. We can be afraid of the enemy. What will they think? What will they do? Christians so often just roll over in fear. And look at how fierce the enemy is in this world, and how they're bold. I mean, what Christ, I mean, think about it, YouTube, Facebook, just pulling down Christian ministers' sermons, shamelessly. They don't care. They're bold as lions. This is the wicked! But Christians, they're they're cowering in fear. But what do we need to remind ourselves of today? That God is in the heavens and He laughs at the enemy. What is there to fear when all around you, every enemy of God is coming against Him, but He laughs? What are we fearing in this life? We should be bold as lions for Christ as, the way, as exactly what the Scriptures say the people of God should be. Why? Because God will be victorious. And let us live like it today. Let us not live as if we are on the losing side of history. That's how often Christians live. With such a negative and pessimistic outlook on the world. We are on the right side of history. We are overcomers in Christ. We are vi- going to be victorious in Christ, and our king will win the day. We have no reason to fear. He is the one who is overcome, and we will overcome in his name also. The last thing I want to say is if you do not yet know this king, if you are still a part of this rebellion against him, Remember this verse this morning. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. The opposite is true. Cursed are those who remain in rebellion to Him. Please, the text tells you to kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. Give your allegiance to the Son. Submit to the Son. Give your life away for the Son. Die to yourself. For the Son. He is your King. And remember what He has said to all those who reject Him. That He will dash them to pieces. Give your life to Christ. You will be the blessed One who has taken refuge in Him. Please, today, do it.